Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Eddie Hamilton, a film editor whose credits include X-Men First Class, Kingsman The Secret Service, Kingsman The Golden Circle, along with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout. Oh, and since our last episode with him, Eddie was Oscar-nominated for his work on a little movie called Top Gun Maverick. I encourage you to check out my prior conversation with him, which is another masterclass in action editing and storytelling in general. We recorded today's Creatively Honest conversation on July 12th, the very day of the release of his latest movie. In this episode, Eddie and I briefly touch on Top Gun Maverick before we transition into a deep dive, spoiler-filled conversation about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Spoilers, folks. You've been warned. We discuss the art of opening a Mission Impossible movie and the emotional logic behind deciding where to place the opening titles of the film, how the filmmakers handle the secrecy of certain sequences, often recreating pieces of Italy on a backlot in England. Also, selecting the best take of the infamous motorcycle cliff jump and why Eddie chose that specific take for the final movie. Wrapping the film down to the wire, shooting new scenes just weeks before the film's global release. All of this and much more. Just for some context, in the conversation, me and Eddie often refer to McHugh, and that is Christopher McQuarrie, the co-writer and director of Dead Reckoning Part 1, who also wrote and directed Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure to be invited on. Thank you for having me, Brando. Before diving into Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is out in theaters now, and I'm excited for people to see it, I had one question about Top Gun Maverick. And I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, handling overwhelming amount of footage. Yeah. This is a quote of yours. Quote, when you have 814 hours of footage, you can't rush it because you need to know you're extracting the best footage for the final film. And in order to know you have the best footage, you have to check everything, close quote. You mentioned how the dogfights in the original Star Wars kind of informed your understanding of geographical clarity, the fact that ILM would sometimes add TIE fighters behind X-Wings. That's true. To enhance the feeling of pressure, etc. Yes. So I was wondering how does creating action geography in space differ from creating action geography on the ground? And uh, when you're working with overwhelming amount of footage, how do you and your entire team try and maintain some kind of like mental health yeah. to make sure you don't get burned down over yeah, the course yeah. of the movie? Wow, great question. Okay, so keeping track of geography in space. Do you mean in the air? Like In the air, yes. Okay, okay. I think it's similar, really. It's about relative geography, usually. So it's about looking over a character and seeing another character beyond. So you understand the geographic proximity between the two characters, sometimes three characters, you know, there are, there are shots in Dead Reckoning Part 1 where you see Ethan and Grace handcuffed together and you see other characters around them, so you understand the proximity. But we did certainly in Top Gun, it's very 
unsafe for two planes to fly very close together for any prolonged period of time, especially if they're doing dynamic moves. So quite often the sequences would be filmed in passes. So we would do a maneuver with one jet or two jets, then they would fly away and then the third jet would come and do another piece of action to make it look like it was flying through or between them or whatever. And then the problem is in the cockpit, of Top Gun Maverick, the lenses are quite wide for the wider shots. I think it was even like a 12 mil lens or something. So it was very wide. And therefore everything looks very far away immediately, right? So any jet that is behind the F-18 where you're looking at the cockpit and you're seeing the pilot looks quite small in the distance. So in order to feel the jet in the shot, they have to be very, very close, like deceptively close, closer than you would expect, say, to create the effect of sensing the other F-18 or whatever behind. It's very interesting when you watch the original Star Wars and you see the X-Wings and how the TIE fighters are put in behind, kind of quite rudimentarily, but still very effectively in terms of storytelling that you understand that a character's under pressure. And so I didn't quite realize how much they had done it in the original Star Wars until I had done it for quite a few months on Top Gun. And then I went back to look at that sequence for inspiration because I never had a problem as an eight-year-old kid understanding what was going on in that dogfight at the end. But it is quite a mishmash of different kinds of shots and it relies a lot on the character's narrating what's going on inside the cockpit, which again is what we did quite a lot. Here it comes. Radar warning, smoke in the air, Phoenix, break right. Emergency jettison, Dagger 3 defending. Here comes another one. Dagger 1 defending. Smoke in the air, smoke in the air. Break right, break right, break right. Break it right. Oh my God, here they come. I remember Jerry Bruckheimer telling me it's really important that the characters say what they're going to do and then you see them do it so that you understand, you know, what their intentions are, which they would never do in real life. They would just go ahead and do it. And then on the ground, it's, I'm trying to think where we were cheating geography quite a lot. I don't think we did really on mission that much, but it is always about seeing Tom Cruise or seeing Hayley Atwell or seeing whoever it is without relying on editing tricks too much, using the, the locations and the lens choices and the, and the composition of the cameras to put them in a space. So in the Fiat chase in Rome, you are on a two shot the entire time. So you're feeling the accurate chemistry between these two characters. You're not using editing to cheat the timing of the, the lines or anything. You're, you're literally allowing the action to play out in a two shot. Sometimes if it's a profile, you can see the wall going, but if it's front, you can even see the Hummer and Paris behind driving down. So you get that reality, you know, because you're in a real location and you, you, you can see the real geography around the characters. I think we did cheat the, the fight on the train quite a lot between Ethan and Gabriel on the train. That started out quite long. As every sequence does, it starts out way longer they always overwrite or over choreograph the scenes so that we have plenty to work with. And we reconceived quite a lot of that action. So the geography is quite cheated on the roof of the train, but because it's cut quite quick, you don't really notice. The thing is with any action sequence, it doesn't matter 
unless you care about the characters, you know, it's very important that you are connected with the characters, you're rooting for them, you care about them, that you understand the stakes of the sequence, you understand what will happen if they succeed, what will happen if they fail, you understand what's supposed to happen. So when it goes wrong, you're you're engaged emotionally and you're wondering what's gonna, you know, how they're gonna get out of the situation. That's really the trick with any action sequence. The geography and clarity of geography is what comes next after that. But the hard work is getting people invested in the scene in the first place. The widow's meeting Lark at the VIP lounge at midnight. No one would be admitted without a pre-issued electronic ID band. We've acquired the unique RFID number for Lark's band, allowing us to locate it with these. Find that ID band, you find Lark. Then what? Then? I assume his identity. Make contact with the widow. She takes us to the package. Just really briefly, before we go into Dead Reckoning Part 1, yeah. I wanted to ask you about the creative discoveries of hiatuses. Because ever since you jumped on with Rogue Nation, obviously they're very different. You had the ending pause for Rogue Nation, you had Tom's ankle break and fallout, and then unfortunately even uh, with uh, Dead Reckoning, you had COVID getting in the way yeah. back in February 2020. I was wondering, what are the conversations when you guys have the luxury of having shot enough where you can sit down and look at the movie and kind of reinterpret that. Yeah. Because often yeah. you're yet to discover yeah. what parts of these movies are. So what does screening the footage and talking about it look like? That's a very good question, Brando. So McHugh is a genius. Don't use that term lightly, but in terms of storytelling and understanding what an audience needs moment to moment through the film, he really is an extraordinary artist. And Tom... Cruz understands the emotional effect that he wants to create throughout the movie. And the two of them work incredibly well together. They, they see a common visual language for filmmaking. And there is almost complete harmony between their tastes in terms of kind of classic film storytelling. When McHugh is in production on these films, it's fair to say that he's gathering ingredients without necessarily knowing how he's going to cook the meal. But he's giving himself a lot of options and a lot of different condiments and flavours and spices and accents so that when we get into editing, we can really craft every character and every emotional moment because the actors have given us such a wide range of options, which is can be overwhelming, right? But is essential when McHugh is finding the film in the edit and rewriting the film in the edit, which is what we do the whole time. Because a movie does not exist until shots are cut together on a timeline and you start to create emotion by intercutting different characters. That's not to say you can't create emotion with a single shot, because you can, but when you've got a complex dialogue scene with 12 characters in a room, you're, you're rarely going to cover that with one angle. And you need to build up the rhythms and the dramatic beats very precisely so that every single emotional beat is landing for the audience and every piece of information that they need is very clearly spelled out so they don't have to work hard to process what's being given to them. McHugh wants to give you exactly what you need when you need to see it or hear it so that it's an effortless emotional experience watching the movie. 
As most of you know, I am merely a broker. I connect a buyer and a seller, sometimes for money, sometimes for information, but mostly for friendship. I just want everyone to get along. With me, especially. But the world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. And the key to world domination is, of all things, a key. One that any government in the world would pay a king's ransom to take possession of. And some of my dearest friends, in this case, every major nuclear power and a handful of minor ones, have asked me to deliver this key. It's a long movie, but we really craft every single frame of the film as best we can. I know one of the questions you asked at the beginning that I didn't answer was about managing huge amounts of footage, right? So, for example, in these big dialogue scenes, we do have a lot of footage and a lot of angles. McHugh does not like wide shots, so you'll see there's a lot of common geography where you'll be on a profile of a character and you'll see another character behind them. And then you'll be on a profile of a third character and then you'll see the second character behind them. So you kind of build the geography of the space because very dynamic, close, emotional angles do not have much information. They're purely emotional. And the holy grail for McHugh and Tom is to, is to keep a smooth emotional experience from beginning to end. And if you pop out to too many wide shots, that becomes just too much information without emotion. So you'll see in some of the dialogue scenes, we really use the wide shots very sparingly, maybe only once or twice in a 10 minute scene, just to give you enough of a sense of the space that the characters are in. And that results in a lot of footage. So the way that we deal with it is we try and stay on top of it every day, which is very important. So you don't get overwhelmed as the week goes on. Same with me when I'm editing is I do try and stay on top of it. Sometimes, certainly on these two films, when we're doing two movies simultaneously, the first one obviously has to take priority because that's going to be out in the cinemas and the second one, we've still got a year to go. So if I have to choose between the two films, I'll focus on part one and I'll put part two on the back burner for a bit and come back to it later. But my team helped me by, for dialogue scenes, breaking them down line by line. We create massive line strings. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but we will put different setups on different layers of different video tracks. Sometimes in a dialogue scene, we might have 25 setups, you know, to cover certain little pieces of action, especially if it's a 10 minute scene. The other thing I do is I'll color the subclips depending on which character is most featured in that shot. So I can see at a glance, when you've got 12 characters in a scene, I can see at a glance how much of each character we're actually seeing on the timeline and how much we're, we're hearing. So it's a very simple visual reminder of the fact that, well, we've seen Ilsa here and we've got to see Ilsa here and here and we've seen her here. How much of Ethan there is, how much of the widow, whatever. So I did that for the aerial sequences for Top Gun where I would colour all the pilots different colours so I understood how much we were on Hangman, how much we were on Rooster, Phoenix, Maverick. And I found it very helpful. So on this movie, I just leaned into it for every scene. I was like, just colour all the clips for each character, one colour. So at a glance, I can see how much of them there are in the train, for example, where we're constantly cutting back and forth between characters in the airport, another one where we're just spinning so many plates at once and you have to really keep track of everything. But my team helped me break all that down. So we have like 70 deliveries of one line on a timeline. And then if McHugh wants to revisit a delivery, a line delivery, we can go through and play them all in two minutes and he can pick the ones that he likes. We can swap them out. We can try 
sometimes we'll take a line of dialogue that was recorded on a different take and slip it into someone's lips if the timing is the same. Sometimes it's even syllables to us to adjust the nuance of a line delivery, which McHugh is very precise about because the cumulative effect is significant. You know, an individual line may not feel like a big deal, but when you're dealing with a dialogue scene with, you know, 40 or 50 lines of dialogue, the rhythms and, and the way that the dialogue ebbs and flows through the entire scene is critical to it feeling natural and truthful and easy to comprehend and enjoy when you're watching the movie. For action sequences, I'm very thorough about breaking down footage. Even when it's multicam, sometimes I'll go through and watch each camera individually just so I've got my full attention on one angle. And what I do is I break down the action into smaller beats. So I have all the similar pieces of action from lots of different angles. And then I'll label it with like a, a piece of text and I'll put a, a green marker or two green markers if I think the shot is definitely going in the movie. So when McHugh says to me, can we go back and look at all the coverage for this piece of the scene, say Paris driving away in the Hummer on Imperiali in Rome, I have all that like labelled and locked up so we can just go through and look at that. And then when I come back to the sequence a year later or whatever, it's all labelled so I remind myself what it was that I was doing. The Venice chase was similar. There was tonnes of footage of Ethan running around hearing things and looking around and meeting different characters a lot of which got lifted out but I had it just in case and then the other thing that's important is when there is heavy lifting with VFX shots and we're under the gun to turn them over quickly I will prioritize building a, a sequence quickly that McHugh and I can review sometimes in the evening at the end of the day when they've wrapped on set We'll go through and we'll look at what they filmed or even what they did the day before. And I'll say, right, this is what I think is the best stuff. Does this, what you remember in your head being the best stuff? And sometimes he'll go, yeah, that's right. Sometimes we'll revisit it. Quite often we're turning over more than we'll actually end up in the finished movie. Because when you're in production on a film like this, it's two years of photography. And you don't really know what you're going to need in the finished version of the movie. So you'll tend to turn over a few extra shots, which look great. And you may think they're essential, but in the fullness of time, when you're looking at a four hour assembly of the movie and you've got to cut, you know, well over an hour and 20 minutes out of it, there's a lot that has to go that you thought was essential, but in the fullness of time, you can get away with. And really, I've said this before, but film editing is on a long movie. It's about compressing the maximum amount of story into the minimum amount of screen time for modern audiences anyway. So when we're later in the edit and we're really trying to get time out and we're really putting our foot on the trash, as, as McHugh says, we're looking at every tiny nuance and asking if we need it. And honestly, every line of dialogue we poured over hundreds of times to check that it could we do without it. And sometimes the audience would tell us there's too much dialogue in this scene and we would strip some of it out and then they would go, well, now we're confused or we don't understand this. So they want it until you give it to them, you know. So for the greater good of the, of the movie, we have to put stuff back in to make sure that certain things land for the audience. Even though they feel like it may be inessential, we've really done our homework and we know that every single line of dialogue is essential and will pay off obviously with multiple viewings and certainly in terms of what's going to happen in part two. So McHugh is aware that the movie is long, but we're also aware that every single thing that's happening 
is there for a very specific reason. And there is no self-indulgence, I hope, when you see the film. It doesn't feel like we're self-indulgent. You and I last time spoke about Fallout and openings. And openings are tricky for multiple reasons. Yes. Tonally, you're establishing a film. And in this case, you have the Sevastopol mission. Yes. I just wonder what the challenges were in that case, making the audience care about characters we've never met and yeah. potentially may never see again. Yeah. And also reaching as fast as possible the traditional mission sequence yes. that we all know and love. Yeah. I have to say the opening of this movie was the hardest to figure out. I mean, we tried so many different ways of ordering all the scenes at the beginning and ways of introducing Ethan and ways of where do we put the opening titles? When do you feel that kind of excitement when the theme kicks in? And when you watch the movie now, it feels right in a way. It feels like everything kind of works and flows and comes in, the everything's the right length. But the opening titles come 28 minutes into the film, which is very late, right? But we kept getting notes from people that the movie only starts in the airport. So if we put the opening titles any earlier, like if we put the titles before the Department of National Intelligence, for example, with the guy walking in with the briefcase and all the characters talking, we didn't get to the team for like another 10 minutes. And people kept saying, well, we only feel its mission when we meet the team. And also, we've still got two hours of movie after that. So it's not like the movie's going to end an hour later, you know. So actually moving the title so late into the film helped us in many ways because it comes after... Tom always said the opening titles have to come after a caper. And we've got that great ending, which I won't spoil, but between Ethan and Kittredge, there's a very satisfying, fun, mission-y kind of ending to the scene, which leads beautifully into the opening titles. And then straight into the airport where Briggs and Dagar are chasing Ethan in the Ospreys. And then Ethan's under pressure. You're meeting Benji and Luther. Benji gets to be the funny guy because he has a couple of funny lines. Luther is Ethan's friend. There's all the bickering and the banter which we enjoy in these films before stuff goes wrong, which again is setting up stuff for the next movie, which you may not even be aware of, but it's all there for a reason. And the Sevastopol scene, listen, McHugh loves submarine movies and he wanted to kind of start on a submarine. And the, again, the submarine pays off massively in the next film because obviously we end part one on the Sevastopol sitting on the seafloor. So you understand that Ethan Hunt, the character, will be doing something with the submarine in the next movie. And the film always started on the submarine. Like the very beginning was always set, although we did cut out some of the stuff that happens before they start to see the enemy submarine on the sonar. That scene was originally a lot longer. The real trick with getting you to engage with characters in a very short amount of time is casting and casting people with interesting faces who you instantly get a sense of. We were presented with hundreds of people, potential people, and McHugh asked Eric Jenderson, the co-writer, to pick great faces. He wasn't necessarily worried whether the actors could act that well or not. He just wanted them to look great in the space and he could get them there with the acting. The captain is a terrific actor. He's a lead, like a star in Poland where he's from. Anyway, the real trick was getting the faces and then using great angles so that we can cut this dialogue like an action sequence at the beginning of the movie. 
there's a lot of head turns and a lot of great eye lines. We evolved the graphics in that scene a lot so that you understood the geography of the two submarines. That was absolutely crucial. That took a very long time to get right. And then it was just a case of compressing it as much as possible because you know, there is a needle in the audience's head about, am I liking this movie or am I not liking this movie? And the longer it is before you meet Ethan Hunt, the more you're going, wait a second, is this actually, am I watching Mission Impossible? Like, what's going on? And then, of course, we introduce Ethan directly after that. And again, we did have a whole other way of introducing Ethan's character, which the audience loved, but did not work in the beginning of the movie because it slowed the pace of the opening of the movie down too much. So that scene with the food delivery guy, was shot quite late on, only maybe six weeks before we finished the movie. And we kept the mission brief very analogue with just plain photographs and an old-fashioned tape recorder. I mean, not even that old, like a dictaphone, really, rather than a reel-to-reel tape recorder. But McHugh loved the idea of this guy in the gig economy delivering food and then using that bag as the self-destruct mechanism for the mission brief. That was quite fun. The desert was originally much longer, like three times as long. And again, we compressed it and compressed it. We worked on the sound mix there to make it feel like a really awe-inspiring sequence in terms of the desert storm and the sand and using the different sonics of the wind to help you keep track of where all the characters were. And then bringing those musical stabs towards the end of the sequence so that you feel like this scene is building to something. Then we transition out of that scene using a dissolve, which helps with the sense of not resetting the audience mentally. If we had just done a straight cut to an establisher of Washington DC, and then we'd gone into the next scene, the audience is feeling like the movie is kind of another chapter and it's stopping and starting again. But if you dissolve across, you're feeling like the two scenes are connected in a way. So you're feeling like one long scene. And then, of course, we revisit the desert a bit later on, which, again, was something we discovered very late in editorial. Originally, we let the desert scene play out in its entirety, but then you didn't get the kind of suspense of what happened at the end. And one option we did was when we ended the Rome scene, when Ethan walks out of the subway with the steering wheel and Ilsa is in the van, we then showed what happened in the desert. But that's like an hour and 20 minutes into the movie which is way too long to be keeping them in suspense about what happened. And you're carrying this negativity around for the whole first hour of the movie, which is unhealthy. So we put the second half of the desert into the DNI confrontation between Ethan and Kittredge so that you understood that Ethan was being economical with the truth and actually playing them, which is very satisfying in that moment when you realise that Ethan's in total control of the situation. But again, we only discovered that it was literally like in the last week or so of editing where we discovered that that was the right way to go. We were never able to test it because we had to finish the film and we didn't have time to do another test screening. We just went on our gut feeling about this is definitely the way to go because we've tried every other combination and none of them are satisfying and they're not working. But I remember when the studio executives saw that We sent a whole version of the movie over so that the marketing department could see it and everyone involved at Paramount could see it. And we still had like an avid mix and all the avid colour and the visual effects weren't quite finished and stuff. But I remember sending that over to the studio and getting incredibly positive reactions to the way that the film opens now. So we felt very good about it. And it certainly plays when you're with a crowd and you feel the music building and playing at the point that it happens, even though it's 28 minutes in.
like we were aware of Babylon. The title of that film came 32 minutes into that movie, but it's not, it's just the title. And The Departed, I think, is also very late, 24 minutes in, I think. The other thing that we did is we looked at movies where we don't, like, for example, we looked through all the Bond movies to see how many of them did not start on James Bond. There's not many. I think there's three where you start on the villain and, you know, the antagonist and you don't start on Bond. And Mission's never done that. That almost exclusively start on Ethan. I'm trying to think. Well, you meet Phelps, I guess, in the first movie, but you, you meet Ethan very quickly. You start on the IMF, should I say. And you meet Ethan in Mission 2 because he's on the plane, even though it's not Ethan, you know, but you're still with that character. Mission three is flash forward. Mission three is flash forward, exactly. Mission four is the prison break. No, no, no. Actually, mission four starts with the rooftop chase. Yeah, yeah, and he jumps off. Yeah, but it's very short. It's like 90 seconds before you're with Ethan. It's not 10 minutes, you know. So we were aware of all those things. And mission, Rogue Nation obviously starts on Benji, but then Ethan runs up and jumps on the plane very quickly. And six goes straight in with Ethan, you know, with Ethan's dream of marrying Julia. Do you, Ethan, take Julia to be your lawful wedded wife? I do. To have, to hold, to love, cherish, honor, and protect? I do. To shield from terrors known and unknown? To lie, to deceive, to live a double life, to fail to prevent her abduction, erase her identity, force her into hiding? Take away all she has known Stop. in a selfish, futile, fleeting stop. attempt to escape your own true self. Please, stop. And Julia, do you choose to accept? Don't. I do. No. You should have killed me, Ethan. So, it was quite a risk to start on the submarine, but it was essential because we wanted to show the real world implications of this AI going rogue and explaining that if this can happen to a single submarine under the sea, imagine if you took this technology and expanded it to what could it do to the whole world. And there wasn't really a way of showing that to the scale that we wanted to in this movie. You know, the entity is there in the nightclub and then it basically forces Ethan to go into an alleyway where he's confronted by Paris and the other henchmen. So that's a real world example of something that you trust, i.e. your friend's voice, being manipulated by a computer to get you to do something that you don't want to do. So the entity as an antagonist doesn't really flex its muscles that much in this movie, but it will do in the next one. But it does tell Gabriel to like lock the the door of the um, luggage car to the coal tender and you're like, why has he locked the door? And then you realise that Grace can't get through to stop the train and then Ethan and Grace can't get back through. So all that stuff kind of pays off later. We speak about tone and I feel like, I know how much you guys love classic filmmaking, timeless, Hitchcock, but meeting analog and digital. You guys have always favored analog. Did you have conversations about how tonally to try and mesh the old missions with the the future? Because I I believe it's never been as modern and contemporary as now. No, no, no. But I think, listen, we all know that AI is a thing now. Almost everyone understands that You know, you can type into chat GPT, write me a Mission Impossible script, and four seconds later, it will write you a script. Plus, the scourge of misinformation and what it's doing to our society and the 
removal of truth, a base level of truth from some conversations is terrifying, but it's something that we as human beings have to confront and it's not going to go away. We have to adapt and we have to deal with it. We have to evolve as a society to deal with it and work out ways of of managing this absence of truth. But the way that AI has become an alarming kind of warning from the future in a way about how much it can impact human beings was not something that we were all aware of even in January of this year. You know, it, in the last six months, it's become headline news, you know, in every country. And when we started on this movie three years ago, the concept of an artificial intelligence being the villain or the antagonist in Mission Impossible did feel quite abstract. You know, it felt like I didn't quite get it. And it's astonishing how the technology has evolved over three years means that what Tom and McHugh came up with has actually evolved into something which is very topical today. And and actually you you kind of understand it when you watch the film because you're bringing that paranoia with you. A bit like when you're watching The Hunt for Red October, you're bringing the paranoia of the Cold War with you into the movie. So you almost don't have to explain it as much. It's just a thing that's there. Certainly for me, I wasn't sure that it would work necessarily. but And I know that we're dealing with it over two films. So it is inherently slightly anemic in part one because we're setting it up as a potential anti-god, whatever you want to say, but it's got into all these computer systems, but it hasn't done anything, but it has the potential to do catastrophic damage to the world. You know, it could shut down power, it could crash planes, it could manipulate traffic lights, you know, train signals, it could turn off life support machines, you know, crazy shit that that an AI could do if if it really decided to go rogue. Catastrophic things, which we will lean into a lot more in part two. So I think that people feel like this part one is is a satisfying individual story, which is great. And you feel like you reach a conclusion at the end, which doesn't feel like a cliffhanger per se. It feels like a, a satisfying ending to the movie, the way that Grace's character transformation has been quite dramatic from selfish to selfless and redemption and choosing to accept you know, at the end of the film, which is very satisfying because I think a lot of the audience may be feeling like they're seeing Ethan's origin story through the eyes of what we see with Grace, you know, and and Benji and Luther to a certain extent. But you certainly get a sense of what those characters were doing when they were recruited. So it's quite fun. And the other thing is we know that a lot of the audience will not have seen a single mission movie. In all our test screenings, over half the audience hadn't seen one, but 80% of them had seen Top Gun Maverick. So there's a lot of goodwill coming from Top Gun where people will give this movie a chance because they like Tom in Top Gun and they're like, what's this all about? Then they'll go back and watch the others maybe. But the point is this movie has to stand on its own. So we do do some heavy lifting, remythologizing the IMF in the beginning of the movie, making the joke about the International Monetary Fund, which fans have been making for ages, but we just hung a lantern on it and was like, yes, we know everyone thinks it's the International Monetary Fund. Also establishing this thing of the oath, you know, we live and die in the shadows, for those we hold close, for those we never meet, which again is going to be a theme in the next movie, but it hasn't been mentioned before. So we're kind of reinventing some of the mythology of the choice, being offered the choice, all that stuff, which is really fun 
for fans of Mission. And it gives you a sense of mythology if you're new to it as well, which is great. But in terms of the digital and the analog, I think that we certainly had our concerns about it. But as luck would have it, the world has entered this paranoia of AI. So the movie is kind of reflecting that back. And the timing is surprisingly prescient in a way. You know, it's, it's very convenient that it's worked out like that. Very surprising for all of us. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. Well, let me ask you, because you said that based on your test screenings, you're kind of getting an understanding that a lot of your audience maybe hasn't seen a mission film. And I wanted yeah. to talk about a character's death in this film. But the concept of Elsa Faust dying is introduced conceptually in the mind of the audience, I think, back in the desert, just yes. by seeing her laying on the ground. Yes, yes, And I yes. think you're emotionally preparing people with the concept that that could happen. And the title of the movie if you want to go that far, yeah. You're dealing with the fact that half of your audience doesn't bring the, the emotional baggage to losing that character. Yeah. But at the same time, I imagine that you are forced to lose that character. I, I wouldn't say early on, but definitely not late enough in the story because we need to emotionally recover from Correct. the trauma. That's true. How do you balance these two <laughs> things? It, it's something we were talking about the whole time. It's a constant evolution of discovering the right way to do it. The real trick was getting the desert right and getting the kind of resolution of the desert scene in the correct place. So you feel Ethan and Ilsa there together and the, there's some beautiful low angle shots of Ilsa. You know, Rebecca Ferguson is, you know, stunningly beautiful where the key is hanging around her neck in the desert. And you feel this connection between the two characters and you don't need much to understand the connection. And even people who haven't seen the other movies still are very moved when Gabriel turns the fight around on the bridge in Venice and takes Ilsa's knife. But we did play around with it quite a bit and the intercutting with Ethan running up and how the music was gonna play, how we were gonna mix the sound and how much time do you give the audience after that to be with Ethan and the characters mourning before you move on. Very famously, if you remember back to Star Wars, when Obi-Wan Kenobi dies, <laughs> there's a little shootout. They run onto the Millennium Falcon, they blast off. And then literally there's about seven seconds with Luke and Leah where he's going, I can't believe he's gone. And then Han runs up and goes, no time for this kid. We've got to get into a dogfight. And literally 30 seconds later, they're fighting TIE fighters and you've kind of forgotten about Ben Kenobi. So you get an incredibly small amount of time grieving the character who's this colossal loss in Luke's life. Can't believe he's gone. There wasn't anything you could have done. Come on, buddy, we're not out of this yet. I just remember thinking back to that quite a bit when we were doing this and modulating the amount of kind of come down that the audience will need. And we had a lot of coverage of Benji being sad and Ethan on the roof. There were shots of Grace walking up behind Ethan when he's mourning on the roof of, you know, in Venice and watching him. You know, there was just, we had lots of options there as ways to put it together. And in the end, we kept it very simple. 
but it wasn't easy. The music cue was the real trick and, the, and how we mix the sound and getting the intercutting of Ethan running, working. And there's any editor or filmmaker watching that will know there's a thousand ways to cut that. And it never works first time. And it's always lumpy and uneven and doesn't flow. And you just have to keep refining it and refining it and refining it until it kind of starts to click into place. And then the music's the last piece of the puzzle. And again, we, that music cue, we, got, we only figured out really quite late because it's got to be exactly right. And the music was also telling us that it's not going to end well. It's going to be a tragic ending. The music is building to a tragic climax. You're not quite sure how it's going to end, but a lot of people don't think it's going to end that way or that dramatically. But it is very effective, I think, the way that we got it working and the way that Ethan kind of runs into this halo of light and then emerges and then we see his reaction and we see him there and then Grace walks up behind him. And I mean, again, Rebecca Ferguson is so beautiful when she's lying still and he runs his hand over her face and everything that's been going through his mind and everything he's feared is playing out and, you know, it's heartbreaking. One little tidbit for you, which was quite fun, is when we were reviewing the DI, the finished version of the movie, we literally had like two days to go before the movie was done, done, done. We saw a tiny little blood vessel on Rebecca Ferguson's neck just pulsing ever so slightly in that shot where she's lying and Ethan puts her hand on her and we were like, whoa, that's got to go. So there was a Hail Mary call to the VFX team to go, can you stabilize that blood vessel on her neck because we can see it's moving. And obviously in days gone by, there's nothing you can do about that. And we'd seen it a thousand times, but not on a colossal screen. And so we didn't spot it. But McHugh was like, hey guys, laser pointers out. And he's like, check that there. And we, we were all going, oh, how did we not see that before now? But that was one of the things that we use visual effects for to enhance the storytelling, which you would never know is a shot because it's completely hidden. Well, let me ask you, because I don't know if we're at that level of paranoia. Did you shoot that in Venice or was that partially? So what was, this? A, you're very, that's a very good question. What was shot in Venice was Gabriel lying dead on the bridge so that paparazzi who were there wouldn't see it. And then we rebuilt the bridge back on a soundstage and did all the coverage of, of Ilsa. Which, by the way, along with the Piazza di Spagna in Rome. Yes. And the Humvee flying over it. Yes, yes. I could not tell. I was like, they wrecked it. I know, what? I know, I know. But they built a replica of the Spanish Steps. Wow. A one-to-one -one replica. I mean, we never thought the Spanish Steps would work. The whole idea of driving the Fiat down and seeing the little baby in the carriage and then rolling, and then they swap sides. We were like, is this ever going to make sense? Is anyone going to perceive what's happening? The first time we screened it, everyone laughed and got the fact that they'd swap sides and that she was going to have to drive and it was going to be a disaster. And there's people crying with laughter at that point in the cinema, which is so satisfying, given the fact that, you know, we weren't there. We couldn't touch the Spanish steps. So everything had to be done with visual effects and, and rebuilding the steps at Long Cross Studios. But when the Hummer came through, I remember the McHugh directing that shot and lining up very specific kind of very strong angles, you know, and they're all slightly dutched and they're all cool. And that when we got that shot of the Hummer blasting through, one take wonder, you're never going to do that again. It was so perfect. And the, the sun was right there. It was amazing. 
Again, that is McHugh directing with much genius and predicting the angle and the, the because you, you're guessing to a lot of the, you're setting the cameras on sandbags and the crew is stepping away because it's so dangerous. And then you're going three, two, one, go. And the, the hammer comes through, smashes it. And then you look at the shot and McHugh just lined it up perfectly. Chunky Richmond, the camera operator, they really are terrific at their jobs. And, you know, the shot turned out brilliantly. But I'm really glad that you, as an Italian, <laughs> there's an amazing shot where the camera is on the front left wheel hub of the Hummer and you're seeing the wheel like clonk down the steps and go into this and again the visual effects on that all the stuff in the background is added later and all the crowd there are no people there because it's so dangerous and it's just flawless it's having the resources to do that and it takes months I swear months to film and then months to do all the VFX you know to that level. On September 7, 2020 you guys get the first day of shooting off with the motorcycle jump. Yes. And <laughs> I immediately thought about you because over the course of these years, we have spoken about the fact that action is designed in a way that feels emotional and a way to show the audience that Tom is performing the stunt. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. So how do you judge a single one take of yeah. a stunt performance? Yeah. Yeah. Compared to judging emotion through dialogue or anything, yeah. what are you looking for in a stunt? So the way that we want to cover or film these stunts is usually tight to wide or wide to tight. So you start on Tom and then you go wide to show him doing what he's doing. It's the same in any of the stunts that we did. Sometimes you'll start wide and then push in to reveal that Tom is on the side of the Burj Khalifa or whatever, you know. But for this one, they did six takes that first day and then they did two takes the following day. And it's a combination of weather because if it's overcast and flat and the lighting is a bit dull, then it's not great to look at. And if there's too much mist, you can't see what Tom's doing. So they were looking for this kind of rolling mist, which they managed to get. And so take five is what ended up in the movie. But I remember watching them all and feeling like take five was the best one. It had the best light, it had the best depth. The camera ship, the helicopter was tracking, the, the movement was beautiful, the operating was great. We had many other angles. So you see the, the front drone shot in trailers and you see it in the opening titles of the movie where you see Tom actually coming off the bike. But in the main run of the final act of the movie, you're behind him at that point. You see him go off. But there's something to be said for an uninterrupted shot of a stunt where you can see that it's real. It's like when you're filming a dance sequence. The greatest dance sequences are just wide shots of people dancing because you, you, you're given a chance to marvel at them. There's yes, he going. I must have made a wrong turn somewhere. No, no, that's it. That's it. What? How could this be it? Well, you can see the train, right? Yes, I see the train. What about it? And you have a parachute. You got a parachute. What do you expect me to do? Well, just, you know, jump. Just jump? Yeah. Have you? Benji, it doesn't work like that. I'm not that high. There's, there's ledges sticking out everywhere. I'm going to hit them before the parachute even opens. Even, Benji, even if I could get the parachute open, I don't know if I can make it across the valley and intercept and land safely on a moving train. Do you copy? Yes, I copy. Look, I'm just trying to help you, okay? I need you to take a step back and pull yourself together because I am under a lot of pressure right now. It's really about lens light location 
emotion, which is the four things that McHugh talks about a lot, but it's about the lens on the camera. It's about the light, so where the sun is in the sky, the dramatic location, and then how you feel, the emotion of the shot. So that's, that's everything that you're weighing up and making sure that you can see that Tom is doing it. So we've already filmed a lot of the action for part two, certainly the biplane sequence, which if you go online, you can see a short clip of Tom standing on a biplane in South Africa, introducing the screening of Top Gun that we had at CinemaCon in 2022. And I was actually in the helicopter, like directing the shot. It'd been rehearsed extensively. So directing it just meant watching a monitor and making sure that the zoom ins and outs were at the correct time. But I had a genius pilot and a genius operator. I didn't need to do very much, but you see what Tom is doing there. So you understand that, you know, he's not afraid of standing on a biplane for real and doing incredibly dangerous stunts. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming up in the next film where you're constantly weighing up, showing that it's really Tom. How long do you hold on a shot? Where's the light? Is it dynamic? Is it exciting? And when we get to discussing part two, we can go into more detail about some of the things that we thought were right. Like normally you want everything to be backlit because it's kind of heroic and exciting, but there are some shots that we discovered did not work with backlight and we needed to almost front light them, which is usually flat and ugly. But for this particular sequence, where they were in this particular location was what it needed to be to give the audience the right emotional feeling, you know, which is lens, light, location, emotion. You know, Top Gun Maverick for you was a masterclass of, of assembling these set pieces where you didn't yet have all the footage. Oh, you talked yes. about alternating <laughs> cockpit footage with yes. you literally with an iPhone yeah. simulating, you know, with small planes on sticks yes, to, yes, yes. to get that. And I can imagine that the train sequence was the same, meaning that you would shoot maybe exterior first, interior later, and, and sometimes even reshuffle and, and shoot new stuff. Yeah. So I wonder how is it for you to try and assemble set pieces with chunks of timeline still missing? Yeah. You know, I want to talk about the art of the intercut where you have three different <sighs> oh storylines. Yeah, yeah. More than anything, how do you know when to exit and enter yeah. a storyline? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you never know. You try stuff out and it's not very good and then you realize it doesn't work and then you try something else out. So you can never predict it. Even if you were writing it on the page and you thought you'd figured it all out, when you actually have the dynamics of the real actors in the location and how they're filmed, you never really know exactly how things are going to intercut. The airport is a prime example of that. There's so much going on between so many characters and you're keeping so many plates spinning. You've got Ethan and Grace here. You've got Luther here. You've got Benji in the luggage area down below. You've got Paris. You've got the buyer. You've got Gabriel. And there's always way more. And we, we just keep cutting it out and cutting it down, cutting it down, cutting it down until we get down to a very tight version of the scene. Then we watch it through. We show it to Tom. He gives us reactions. We keep refining it. We keep refining it. We go and do some pickups on people. But for the train scene, the very end of the sequence, which is where Ethan and Grace are climbing through all the train cars, was previsd in February 2020. So we're talking like before we even finished Top Gun, McHugh was working on the idea of these characters having to climb through train cars, which are slowly falling off a crumbling bridge. And I remember seeing that just going, crikey, if we can pull this off, it'll be quite spectacular. And it is very hard 
to create a sequence which feels very fresh. Like, wow, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in a movie before. So wherever we didn't have a shot, we had a bit of previs for that. And again, I did have lots of establishing shots of trains that they shot in Norway. They shot some in North Yorkshire here in the UK. So I had a wide variety of shots of the train going past camera, the shots of the wheels, you know, the shots of the train going around the corner, all that kind of stuff that we needed to give variety in the establishing shots of the train. And so sometimes we would even only cut back to a shot of the wheels to go, we're back on the train. If we'd left Ethan and, and Benji, we're going to the wheels just to get us back in the train. They had shot a lot of plates of outside. So all the stuff, interior train cars was shot on a soundstage with a big lighting rig and green screens outside. And the car is on bellows, so it's moving ever so slightly. McHugh could cue the SFX department to kind of rumble the train if he wanted it to move at certain points of the conversation. And the lighting rig was extraordinary because it was reflecting all this stuff on the actors' faces. So you feel all the interactive light and all the plates we shot in Norway of the train the POVs outside the window, they shot with a big array of cameras. So we had like a 360 degree view of the train's POV, as it were, going through the countryside. So we had lots of options for what was outside the windows to put in there. And my VFX team would help me by, whenever we had a cut of the scene, they would drop in all the, the outside you know, windows. But when we first watch it with Tom, it's all just plain, we don't really do anything. We just leave all the blue screens in there. So it's not distracting. Like intercutting is very difficult. You have to start somewhere. It's never right. You make your best guess at it. I never worry about it too much. Even when we think we've got it working, I still know that it's gonna change and that the audience will watch it and they'll go, eh, it's a bit, you know, we're away for Ethan too long or we're with the widow too long or this bit with Paris is too long. So you look at it and you refine it. And honestly, the train is like, I don't know, it started off well over an hour long, that whole scene. It's now down to maybe 50 minutes or something from when they get on the train, to maybe 48 minutes to the end. But we would watch it like several times a day and we keep refining it and going, no, let's watch it again. Do we start on Paris jumping on the train? Do we start on Ethan riding on the motorbike? Do we show Gabriel knocking the driver out before we see Ethan? Do we show Gabriel and then we cut to Ethan and then we go back to Gabriel and Paris? So you're, you're constantly finding your way through it. It's not like we've worked it out. It's just trying out options. And then when we cut the Venice scene before, what happened with Ethan and Grace at the end of Venice? And then how long can we afford to be away from Ethan Hunt by setting up what Paris and Gabriel are doing on the train? How much of the widow do we need? Like there was a lot more of the conversation with the widow and her brother Zola, but we cut it down to a look. He just said one line, Grace isn't getting out of Venice without our knowing it. Then we cut to a shot of the widow kind of smiling. And the audience is thinking, oh, that's Grace already in the mask. But it isn't because then when she walks into the carriage and then and you're like, oh shit, no, that was her. And now it's that, oh shit. So we're, we're playing with the audience's emotions and expectations at that point as well. But th there is not really an art to the intercut apart from refining it endlessly until it feels right in the film. Maybe there are people out there who get it right first time, but like anything creative, every first draft starts off lumpy and not very good. And that's why you very rarely do one take when you're rolling cameras on a film set, because you're like, it can be better. And so you refine it with the actors and the cast and the camera work and the lighting. You go back, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again. So you dial it in. It's like anything creative, you know. Any first draft of a script isn't great. You know, you have to keep working at it and working at it 
And it's the same when you're editing, which is obviously visual writing. You know, it's the, it's the final write of any film, you know. It's the only time a film is really written visually, even though on the page you can write visually, but till you physically see the actors in the space and the lenses on the cameras, you don't really understand the emotional effect that you're creating until you watch it all put together at the end, you know. Absolutely. I just want to end on a, on a speed round, whatever the, quickly, the, the first thing that Great, comes to Great, okay, mind. cool. In Fallout, the, the London section of the team coming back to London was the thing that had yet to be figured out. Was there a section of this movie that was on a conceptual level from the beginning, you started production without really knowing how it would go? The whole movie. Okay, great. That works. <laughs> every scene was, was figured out and evolved as we went through. Every single moment in every scene. Like, if McHugh told you the story of the movie before we started rolling cameras, it was 100% different to what's in the movie now. The only thing that might have been in there was we want a scene on a train, we wanted a scene on a submarine, and we want to chase around Rome and a foot chase in Venice. That was basically what was there back then. <laughs> I apologize for ending on such a profound question, but we might as well. Yeah, I want to yeah. talk about your legacy. This is a quote of yours. Quote, there's a lot of elements you can't control over the course of your career, but one thing you can control is how hard you work on a daily basis, close quote. So looking at this evolution of your career so far, going from delivering coffee at a post-production house to editing Mission Impossible 20 years later, what have you learned about the movies you like to make, Eddie? And in what kind of ways do you hope audiences are gonna you know, remember your work even a hundred years from now? I don't really think it's my work, right? Because it's a team effort, and I, I do say that in all sincerity. The reason these movies are great is because of Chris McQuarrie. They're not because of me. I play a part in it. And yesterday, I realized that I'm a little bit like, <laughs> I'm Benji to his Ethan, in a way. Do you see what I mean? Like, Benji is integral to Ethan's success, but it comes from Ethan, right? And it comes from McHugh. So I'm very happy to, to be very good at what I do and play my part in these movies. But I couldn't do it on my own. I genuinely couldn't. Like, I work on this a lot with Chris McCrory. And great movies don't come together without an amazing team of people who work on them. Chris McCrory is steering the ship and doing it very, very well under intense pressure all the time. And Tom Cruise is the producer of the movie and gets the ultimate final say on everything to do with the film. But Chris is doing the day-to-day -day work of driving the ship forward. Listen, I love working with really talented storytellers. Matthew Vaughan is a terrific director. Chris McCrory is a terrific director. And I'm very fortunate that I've had a way of collaborating with those two individuals over the years. I could not do it on my own. I couldn't direct a film and have it be half as good as what those guys do. But I can be very good at what I do and work very hard at it and be enthusiastic about it. Enthusiasm carries you so far in this industry because there's quite a lot of jaded crew who have been around film sets for decades and, and are all just like looking at their watch and wondering what's for lunch. But I'm very enthusiastic. I love what I do. I can't believe I get paid to do it. I pinch myself every day. I remind myself on my way into work how lucky I am to be doing what I'm doing. No two days are the same. I get to work with the best creative people in the world. And I also, I love working on these gigantic scale films where we have the resources to do amazing work in great locations with the best VFX artists, the best cinematographers, the best costume designers, production designers, the best composers. You know, all of that stuff is a real treat. And when you've come from, like I have, a world of no budget filmmaking where you're dreaming of 
working on a big canvas one day. When you finally get there after 20 years of hard work, it's a joy to be part of that every day. And I, and I love doing it. And I'm very grateful that I find myself collaborating with somebody as brilliant as Christopher McQuarrie and with a producer and a star, obviously, as good as Tom Cruise. And also working with Jerry Buckheimer and Joe Kaczynski, you know, and, and Chris McCrory was involved, obviously, and Tom on Top Gun Maverick. But that's really the joy for me. Like, I, I love nerding out with all the editing technology, but it's the storytelling and it's, it's being able to play a part in a film and, and you know, a significant part, because I work on the movie every day and every single frame of the film goes through my fingertips ultimately. But like, I love going to the movies and I had the best memories as a child going to see classic movies well I mean classics now but you know movies in the 80s 70s and 80s and early 90s until I was like 20 years old that was you know where I really fell in love with movies at a profound spiritual level and wondered whether one day I'd be able to be a part of that world and feeling so excited about walking in and watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or E.T. or Return of the Jedi or Die Hard or Lethal Weapon or Back to the Future or any of those movies which I loved dearly and I really got lost in and you know oh, Rocky I remember watching Rocky 2, 3 and 4 at the cinema and just going god these are so entertaining these films and the crowd was so into it you know even in the UK people were cheering and clapping and I was I all the Bond movies that were made then, I remember just going, God, this is so cool. I wonder if I could be part of this. And aiming for that from a very young age, just going, one day I want to do this. I'm not quite sure how, but I'll just work very hard and try and educate myself and somehow aim for that and climb up the ladder of the industry. Don't know quite how it's going to work. And there is no set path. Everyone finds their own way to doing it. But hard work and enthusiasm is what has paid off for me, luckily and has put me in a position to meet Matthew Vaughan and Christopher McQuarrie and collaborate with them on these extraordinary films, which hopefully will be watched in decades to come. You know, it's an enormous privilege and I feel very grateful that I get to do it every day, you know, and I love it. Eddie, you've been so generous with your time as always. Thank you so cool. much. Thanks, Brando. Love the interview. Great questions. Thank you, sir. And there it is, folks. Thank you to Eddie for sitting down with me to record this episode. And to Eric for always taking care of the final mixing. If you're a fan of the franchise, don't miss our previous exclusive conversations with several key department heads who worked on the Mission Impossible films. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. Soundstage Access.